Essential Conversations. I'm your host, Luca Halix, with my co-host, Rebecca Mears. We're trying something different this week. We've been exploring the fullness of the pandemic, and we're, we're coming up with new ideas because as, of, as with all of you, we're experimenting with um, how can we do this show and, and be of this world that we're in at the moment, which is a pandemic world right now. So we want, we um, talked to somebody uh, who's on the show this week, and we found that we have a, a topic that we'd like to explore uh, in more depth and breadth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're calling this, uh, we're going to create a mini series of these, um, three or four shows, we're not sure how many yet, um, but we're we're calling this, and, and I'll, let, I'll, I'll let Rebecca say it for you, but we're calling it Essential Conversations. The Deep End. The Deep End. We're going to go into the deep end by expanding our voices that we bring onto the show into a topic um, that has meaning for us and that has meaning for our world right now. So we will um, we'll dive into this now. This week, uh, our, we're inspired to bring a conversation to you um, that sprung out of one that I had with an acquaintance recently. Uh, we were talking around um, her past, her personal experiences, um, ups and downs of life, but it ended up converging with some new uh, laws that are coming through in Canada that began, it was a journey that began a few years ago, and um, I ended up talking with Luca. Luca, we were deciding that maybe this would be a really good topic to explore a little more in depth and maybe bring some voices to the table. So we've actually brought my acquaintance friend to join us today. Um, Leanne is joining us today. We're going to be talking to her about her life experiences and how it connects with something that's kind of transformative that's coming through in Canada today. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for joining us today and adding your voice to this conversation. Thank you. Um, so Leanne, why don't we start by, uh, how about you tell me a little bit about like the arc of your life? What have been like maybe some major themes that you've dealt with through your life that in the end sure. kind of relates to what we're talking about today? Sure. So I kind of have a history with um, mental illness and mental wellness that started in my teen years. Uh, I was bullied quite heavily as a a child, um, grew into a teenager who really didn't know how to manage um, some of those emotions. I felt quite emotionally stunted, even as my body transformed into being what one would think was the swan. Um, It led me on a path of panic attacks, um, anxiety disorder, depression, and that's really where it started for me. And this is something that I've, I've dealt with through most of my life, through my teens, through my 20s, through after the birth of my children with postpartum. Um, 
getting on medications um, and trying to navigate life and understand what life was like and how I could have a life worth living, even with a diagnosis. Right. Mm -hmm. And you actually do a lot of your work is focused in this area too, right? It is. So I've done, I've done many things in involving um, mental health. Um, I've worked supporting birthing families, I have um, dealt with postpartum adjustment and supporting uh, families through that helping them to navigate resources. Um, after the birth of, of my child that passed away, um, I went into bereavement uh, support work, helping people and my life work in general, uh, is around caregiving. It, it sounds like a lot of, uh, you've taken all the things that have happened to you mm-hmm. and turned them into ways in which to give back to the community, uh, right. with your sensitivity of, um, the, the challenges that all of those events present. Um, you're turning, you're turning it around and you're using that as a way to give. That's true. And um, not only that, I also really had to work hard to seek out resources and things that would help to support me with my own mental wellness as well. So things aren't really that obvious out there. And when I sought out resources, um, I guess we had a lot more resources than, well, I know we had a lot more resources than what we do now, but even then I had to work very hard to seek out those resources and I've used those resources and the experiences that I've gone through in my life with abuse, um, with, uh, losing a child stillborn, um, with, a treatment resistant major depressive disorder, as well as anxiety to really, help give back to other people because throughout each of those seasons in my life one of the biggest things that I noticed is that there really weren't a lot of supports out there so I didn't want other people to feel as helpless and hopeless as I felt uh, going through these experiences yeah and and you're when you're going through those experiences that's when you are in, in a way, the, in the worst position to be able to seek out and access resources, right? It's, it, it's almost adding insult to injury that you, that you, need, you need them and you, and you then have to put all that energy into finding them and getting to them and yeah. And I really had to be my own advocate and that's the thing. And um, I know that I'm unusual in that sense that I had, I really had that tenacity, even in the midst of such deep despair to really seek out those resources. Um, Sadly, the resources that I personally found beneficial and helpful to navigate these challenges are really not available anymore today. Where did you see a a shift in that start to happen? If I, maybe it's only evident kind of in hindsight, but like what kind of resources used to exist that you find don't exist now? You know, it's kind of funny because I, I was talking to someone about this the other day and it really looks like if you look at certain timelines with mental, mental illness and how people that have a mental illness are treated and what resources 
are accessible to them, it really goes in ebbs and flows and shifts. So, you know, it, when trying to access mental health resources in say the late nineties to up until about 2010, you had a lot more access. But since then I started to really see that those resources started to dissipate. So one example um, was through my local mental health. Um, I had spoken to my family doctor and I'm very blessed that I have a family doctor that has always had my back and encouraged me and told me that, you know, despite my challenges, I'm still a good person. I'm still a good mother that I had a life worth living. I told him that I was looking into some resources through mental health and he was really supportive of that. So I had accessed a few different groups through there, uh, a depression group, uh, an anxiety group. But after the loss of, of my daughter and then um, a divorce, very uh, coming out of a toxic relationship, um, uh, I really hit a wall. I, I, I hit a place where I'd never been before, such a deep sense of darkness. And I can remember very clearly um, being, it was like a black box and being in this box and it went on and on and on. And I had had a subsequent diagnosis of PTSD because after the loss of my child, I, um, felt sepsis and, um, the trauma that kind of went along with that really, um, exacerbated my condition. I remember sleeping like nine hours over a, a span of three days. And so, um, I had contacted mental health and I was able to connect with a clinician who was able to direct me to a group that she felt that I would be really good with. And this was uh, DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy. And under, unlike other groups that were somewhat shorter term, um, this was long term. I, I think I did it over the course of about a year and a half. Um, and it was really multifaceted. So we would meet for our groups. Um, we would also have daily homework and journals that we had to do. Uh, we had two clinicians that led the group. And then I had one clinician that uh, I saw weekly. And I also had access to a psychiatrist that was fantastic. And so all of those pieces kind of came together. And it was a lot of work, like it took a lot of work. And when you're in a dark place, that is so hard. Mm -hmm. But one thing I'll say, um, my clinician, and I will forever appreciate her, you know, fiery redhead power shoes. <laughs> she was awesome. And she could be the kindest, most compassionate woman, but she also had no problem calling me to the mat when I needed to be called to the mat. And I always say gave me a little bit of a spanking when I when I needed it. And um, really hammered home that that piece that's missing that that um, radical acceptance that that piece of compassion and looking at myself with the same amount of compassion that I was affording to other people. Mm also having the psychiatrist was an excellent piece because he was really good too. Um, he treated me like I was a person he treated me like I had intelligence and, you know, I could go in there 
and say, you know, these are my thoughts and my concerns around my medications. And rather than just look at me like I was an ignorant uh, Google MD, he, he really took the time to validate my concerns. So having all those pieces coming together. So the self work, which is the most important work, having the education, having that accountability with my clinicians, having that support system with the psychiatrist, all of those pieces over the period of a year and a half, that was when I really felt my life pivotally change. Now, sadly, not long after I graduated, so to speak, from the program, the program in that form dissipated. Mm. My clinicians had actually taken training through Marsha Linehan, and she's the original creator of the dialectical behavioral therapy. And the program changed and it was condensed and kind of squished down. And so I remember through conversations with my clinicians and, and even with my psychiatrist about the slashes and cuts and slashes and cuts that were happening in the mental health sector and how resources were being dissipated and things were being, my words, band-aided, so to speak. So rather than having these larger, longer-term, multifaceted treatment plans, you, they were looking at it as more of a shorter-term um, accessibility for mental health resources like, say, six visits, um, maybe a short-term group that kind of covers a little bit of everything. It really wasn't tailored to the long-term goals and healing that come with mental health. Right. So I'm hearing a few um, themes or you could say elements that are popping up through the stories that you're, you're sharing here. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things you mentioned early on was you received a message from someone who was very closely supporting you in your care about you being valuable, you having a life worth living. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy uh, was also teaching you radical acceptance for yourself. Mm -hmm. The two of these things I'm hearing compassion mm -hmm. and, and, and patience as well, but mm -hmm. a valuing of a human life, but a communication of the valuing and not just from other people, but an instilling in that in yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we both can all agree that that's not necessarily a message that we are very good at communicating in society as a whole, You're right? With our focus on comparisons and stigmas that are still pervasive around mental health and mental wellness, mm -hmm. it's shifting, but it's not fast. And all of these things can combine to create a soup where you're having to constantly swim against the flow in right. order to try to create space for acceptance for yourself. Never mind other people accepting you. So, but you're also describing a landscape of support that was based on compassion and skill mm -hmm. that was starting to get eroded by convenience and costs. Correct. Yes. So can you tell us a bit about um, 
the the laws that have just we just had some new laws passed in Canada mm-hmm. um, although I don't think they've been implemented yet and it's going to be I, I'm saying slow in like air quotes right now slow to yeah. implement because I don't know what that actually is going to look like right. but um, I know that was mm-hmm. a, the basis of you and I having a conversation the other day was we started talking about this based on that so I'd love yeah. since you have a closer connection in working in this environment than I do I'm just the lay person that le- reads the newspaper articles and, and sees what's going on could you maybe give an overview about these laws and then maybe we can tie it all back into your personal experience, but we'll start with just a description of the laws. Sure. So um, with the bill C7, which was originally created for people suffering with um, terminal illness, um, we've seen changes that have happened within this bill. Um, You know, there was a lot of lobbying kind of put forward in terms of people with physical disabilities that were suffering with lifelong illnesses that wanted access to the medically assisted dying. Um, And then just very recently, it came out that that criteria was going to be expanded to um, people solely with mental illness. And what I think was confusing to me is that you know, when I when I read back, and when I first started following the evolution of this law, one of the biggest criteria was that a person had to um, be mentally well, so to speak, that they had to pass a certain criteria in order to be able to make this decision. So it seemed like a bit of an oxymoron for me when when the other day I woke up and read an article that said that this had had now passed. Um, They had the felt that, you know, if it was being opened up to people that were having physical disabilities, that um, it would only be fair for it to then be opened up to people that were struggling with um, suffering, that treatment resistant um, mental illness as well. Mm-hmm. And um, that really struck a chord with me. Um, Not only that, when I looked a little bit more into the criteria around that, um, some of the things really stuck out for me. So first of all, um, the age, so 18, um, an 18 year old with mental illness, um, you know, that maybe has an established history of of depression. um, You know, I don't want to put words in someone else's mouth, but has some sort of a mental health history. Let's just leave it at that. Um, that that person could at the age of 18 then go forward with one independent witness and um, apply for for medically assisted dying and um, that would need to be reviewed and to make sure that they would fit the criteria Um, and they would have to have an assessment and they would have to have the support and I I'm using the air quotes now available to them presented to them so that they would know resources were accessible to them if they wanted to access them. And that there would then be a 90 day sunset period um, at which they would be reevaluated to see if they still wanted to go through with the medically assisted suicide. So that's kind of in a nutshell, my, what I was reading from the parliament website and what I, what I gathered from from following the laws as to how it kind of is going to be laid out for, for how this will affect people solely with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we take a quick, um, 
not a break, but I'd love you to share because you've worked with the elderly, I believe, mm-hmm. for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. And the first iteration of this law, of course, rolling out was around the physical. Sure. Um, and yeah, yeah. so you, I believe you've had the chance to see the original law in action. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to know uh, what that's been like. I think um, I can speak just from for personally for myself. I know that when the laws first came out, I actually did a, a woohoo because mm-hmm. I was so I've been aware of so many people who suffer so intensely and that there was no option. They could not personally choose to take their own life. Um, they did not right. have whatever was capable for that. Right. And, and yet their, their lives were suffering. And so I was like, okay, this is great. We're finally getting in step with some, some other um, nations in the world who have really compassionate care and structures mm-hmm. around supporting people if they would like to exit, that this is uh-huh. really an unhappy life. Um, and I kind of looked at it from the lens of, well, we actually exercise this kind of compassionate care with our animals very frequently because we can, we know them so well, we are in charge of their health and well-being. And when we see that they are, it's like, we're, we're making them live just for us. We somehow can get to that state of this is unkind. I would like to assist them to have a very peaceful transition. And I felt like we were stepping into something positive right we were making steps yeah exactly so how did you see it actually roll out you know it's been in place for a few years what have you seen um well you know I've seen different people throughout my life not not just necessarily in my work but people that I I I've even known just personally um so in a in a personal interaction um I remember a situation where a woman that i I'd known for several years. Um, we were having a visit one day and she was telling me um, she'd had contracted um, something. It doesn't matter, but she basically contracted an illness and it was of no fault of her own. Um, and uh, she still felt though that she had a, a life worth living. And um, she had mentioned to me that one day she had gone into her doctor and she was alone. Uh, there was no one else there with her and um, that her doctor had brought up the opportunity for her to consider medically assisted dying. And it crushed her to the core because um, she had mentioned to me that there was some medical negligence involved that had caused her illness in the first place. Um, secondly, even though her life had changed dramatically, um, she still wanted to live. And thirdly, at that time now, and, and things may have changed at that time, you were not allowed to have that conversation with someone unless they had an advocate or someone with them. So to go in for a routine appointment and be blindsided with the conversation of, of ending your life pretty much just absolutely devastated her. And she said to me, and I remember like, am I not worth it? Do they just want to kill me off? And that really broke my heart. And it, and it spoke to me because even though her life did look different now, she did have a life worth living Mm -hmm. because she wanted to live. Right. And, and at the end of the day, 
that conversation, in her opinion and mine, should not have happened without the presence of someone else there and some form of warning. Uh, I've got an article pulled up here that's kind of representative of a lot of the ones that I've read. And there's Mm -hmm. phrasing around this that I've always, when I read it, it's really constructed my paradigm on how this works. But it's in Mm -hmm. contrast to what you're saying. It's usually phrased as... um, so I'll just read from the article. Canadians who are not near the natural end of their lives now have the right to seek medical assistance in dying. Mm-hmm. Right to seek seems very different than um, being invited or having offered right. an exit that you didn't ask for, especially considering if this is moving into the mental health realm, if you've already got issues around recognizing if your life is valuable, that your life is worth living in, in a state that is stigmatized, that is possibly not having as many supports. Mm -hmm. So that's concerning. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. And that's kind of what I thought too. Um, And It also kind of really, you know, and that's where I'm worried about this. This is where my concerns come in because, you know, like you said, in the beginning, it had a very strict criteria of what it was for. And I mean, once something is implemented, it's really hard to unimplement it, but it's, then it's just a matter of fine tuning it and, and, and making layers to that onion. And some of those layers are good. And some of those layers maybe are not the most beneficial. And so that is where my mind goes. Now, I think about mental illness and I think about a situation um, that I personally had gone through with someone that I had had trusted. So um, and how things can be kind of somewhat coerced and I think I remember you and I had this conversation about this at one point too so I'd had a a male therapist and he had um was suggestive let's just put it that way and um I can see in hindsight although my spidey senses were telling me at the time that I was being somewhat groomed and at the final visit that I ever saw him at um the lights were low there was open alcohol sitting on the table um, and he came over and physically touched me. Mm. And I remember talking to you about that conversation and what had gone down there. And when I um, spoke up to him about it, because I was encouraged to report this negligence from this professional, um, I was basically told like, who are they going to believe you, me, right? Like when you have a mental illness, even if you're, and I use this term loosely, high functioning, um, you know, you still have the criteria and the stigma out there um, about your ability to make decisions um, and, and what you're saying. So twofold. So number one, if someone was feeling coerced, would they be believed if they came forward? Right. Second, second of all, really, are they in a place where they can even make such a, such a huge decision? Um, 
those are the things that are kind of sticking out to me if that makes sense it does i also hear you making reference there to the power dynamics right yeah i was just going to say that this is a I mean, in any of these situations, we're dealing with extreme sensitivity around power, power dynamics and the abuse of power mm-hmm. and things happening behind closed doors because of confidentiality. Mm-hmm. So, so there are no witnesses. There are no, there are no video records. There are there. So there's nothing that an outside person can um, access to make an independent judgment about whether uh, coercion is involved or grooming is involved or, and so it speaks, I think, I mean, in this case, we're talking about what happens to the right to die, um, the whole, that whole conversation, Mm -hmm. but, but it, it overflows into many, many different areas. And was just talking to somebody today about a human rights, a case, being prepared to go in front of a human rights tribunal and very much similar kind of situation to this. The person um, was disabled on the job mm-hmm. and there, there's there, the person that they had to go to, to report the, the injury is a person who decided not to report it. Wow. And so, and so where, where do you go then? Because you're already disabled. Mm-hmm. So the person who's supposed to be helping you to access the resources that would strengthen your position and help you to heal and cope and move forward is in a position where they can abuse their power without oversight. And so this, I think what we're coming back to here is as soon as you have something that is um, this irreversible, Mm -hmm. where's the oversight? And I don't think it's acceptable. Um, I've never thought that it was acceptable to have doctors overseeing other doctors um, and, you know, or, or, you know, lawyers overseeing other lawyers. Um, so, so it brings up this bigger question of how do we um, create oversight within any of these systems so that there isn't an abuse of power because you know, uh, uh, the people, it, just like Rebecca was saying at the beginning, and I felt the same way as Rebecca did. I thought, mm-hmm. good, finally, people are going to get some say over how they deal with the pain in, in their lives and whether it's emotional pain or physical pain. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we know um, that they, they feel just as bad to a person. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've been emotionally abused or physically abused, the abuse is just as, as weighty on, on either end. So, so as soon as we bring in anything that's going to help with that, we also have to bring in the oversight. And, and I, and I think that we're grappling with this across the board, across society, across countries. And I'd be really curious to know in the countries where they've had this right to die um, and, and assisted death legislation in place for longer, have they, have they made any inroads into this that, that we know about? Mm-hmm. That might be good for, good for us to find out. Well, yeah. you know, um, and, and something about that, and, you know, I know I've had a, you know, I, I gave you the example of uh, a bad experience for my friend and I gave you 
uh, the example of a bad experience with that one particular therapist. And, and I know that the majority are, are, are good, are good. You know, the help is good. Although the help, yeah. And yeah, yeah, we assume they are. And, and we know that with these resources being so cut, which we'll get into a little bit, it's, it's putting even more pressure and even more load on, on these professionals. And, and generally, um, as you guys know, the, the good ones tend to take on the majority of the load because they do care. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's, and that's the thing. And I mean, I've been blessed to have them, but here's some things that I'm kind of concerned about with this. Um, so first of all, when you're dealing with, with mental illness, as opposed to say a terminal illness, um, for example, I mean, you got to kind of look at, at mental illness a little bit differently. It can't be kind of blanketed in with a terminal illness. And I say that from experience because number one, it's generally something that you will have for the rest of your life. Like even with medication, even with the DBT, even with counseling and such, I still go in for tune-ups. Let's right. just put it that way. And, it. And, and, I, and I've had to work very hard over the years to get over that shame that my life doesn't look like the nine to five, 40 hours a week rat race out there. I've had to schedule how I work um, and what I do in order to still make space for my own replenishment and healing so that <clears throat> I remain on top. But I still have times where I get very dark. I still have times where I get very anxious. Now, looking at back then and picking her up and putting her into 2021. 2021, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we are seeing astronomical rates of, of depression. Um, we are seeing resources being even more um, scarce than, than they've ever been. Had I not had the same level of access to resources, yet had the opportunity to end my life, would now have made the same choice to still have a life worth living and that's an interesting question because when I woke up that morning and I first read the article and how this had come into play one of the first things that happened was like a body memory that feeling of sickness and shame came over me and well maybe they lied to me maybe I'm not worth living And I understand that's not what the article said, but that's what came into my soul because I'm looking at the, at at the criteria here. So, you know, um, when I was underage, I started having a mental health history. So I developed a bit of a file. Um, You know, what about children that are suffering through the pandemic? and are suffering with loneliness and are suffering with depression and are are self-harming or families that are breaking down under the pressure of what's been happening due to the isolation you know so now you have a child that has a mental health diagnosis and they're trying so very hard to 
access resources, which are so scarce at the best of times, and even more so now, mm-hmm. now that child has a file and a bit of a history, as that grows and festers and manifests, then you have a child that say in two years when this is implemented, hits the age of 18. At the age of 18, this child, as an example, say they feel suicidal to the point where they're suffering so deeply that they cannot see out of that black box, that one I told you about. They, they just don't see that there's any hope. And they go to a doctor that, um, you know, is able to do these assessments and they, they do the initial assessment. Um, they meet the criteria. They are told about resources in their community um, that they can access. And then they are told to wait it out for 90 days. At the end of 90 days, if that darkness is still there and they choose to take their life, from what I'm reading, they can. And what scares me about that is anybody who's ever dealt with long-term mental illness um, knows that it takes a heck of a lot longer than 90 days. Yeah. That's a drop in the bucket. And mental wellness and the navigation of mental wellness is really a lifelong process. So to me, it feels like we have this broken wheel. And rather than putting the spokes back in the wheel and rebuilding it, before we enter, we, we, we bring forth this, this, this bill, rather than doing that and fixing that, we're introducing a bill, but we still haven't dealt with all of this. Right. It, it seems there's a, there's so much room for precariousness here with extreme, extremely vulnerable people, which mm-hmm. I mean, it's known that for many mental illnesses, a lack of desire to live is a symptom yes. of that of many mental illnesses. So to then be compounded possibly with if, there is a structure that allows for abuse of power where instead of offering accessible, realistic supports, yeah. uh, instead only the exit door is offered. Um, it definitely seems like there's not a whole lot of real choice there. That's right. And then you look at other situations. So say, for example, someone that lives in a rural community that doesn't have access to the same resources that somebody may have in the city. Um, and then you look at the socioeconomic factor. Mm-hmm. So even if you have a good work plan or if you have benefits that really only gives you access to probably about six, six counseling treatments, which is nothing. So then you look, start to look at how it almost goes against people that are lower income. Um, and have barriers to accessing supports. Now we know that there are non-for-profit agencies that do offer counseling, but if you take a look at their wait lists and what, what they go through, there's really a big divide 
So you can't really access this regular, long-term, multifaceted approach unless you have the money and the means to do so. So where does that leave somebody who, who is on income assistance? Where does that leave somebody who's homeless? Yeah. Where, you know, it, it almost struck me, a chord with me that unless you had the money, you were somewhat more disposable. And that's my opinion. That isn't a fact. It's my opinion. Because I know that I wouldn't, I could not afford to access the treatments that were given to me. If I had to pay for them outside of my medical because they're no more available. They're no longer available through the public. Leanne, you were also mentioning that the program that you went through was a longer program and it's now being cut back. Right. If we compare um, that longer program with the 90 day period. Right. For for assessing uh, whether you really want to end your life. Right. They, they seem disproportionate to me. And when you also take into consideration how long the person has been living with either, you know, either physical pain or um, mm-hmm. a, 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 um, a degradation of their physical well-being or the, the emotional pain and the degradation of their emotional well-being, mm-hmm. that, that we're, we're talking about trying to fix it in a fraction of the amount of time that it took for the person to get to that place in their lives mm-hmm. in the first place. That's a very good point. And the other thing that's occurring to me is you're talking about all of this. And certainly it's something that I have found with the counseling clients that I've um, worked with is that very few things in this world are unidimensional. So, mm-hmm. so we've got, if you're in physical pain for a, for a long period of time, there's going to be a mental health component to that right. that comes out of having to deal with physical pain, with disability, with not having work, with um, the, the pressure that that puts on family relationships, all of those kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. so now you're not just dealing with physical pain, you're dealing with physical pain and mental health. Right. If you've got a mental health issue and then, then there can be, you, you talked about the number of different um, people, you say you had a psychiatrist involved and you've got some medication and then you've got, um, you've got some behavioral therapy and then you've got, you know, so there's all kinds of support. We don't just need one kind of support to get out of a situation like that it, or even just to manage it. If it never goes away and we're managing it for our lifetimes, so we need this this um, multidisciplinary, multi-professional approach to it, mm-hmm. and it seems like when we when we start to pull back on the resources that are available for mental health, mm-hmm. wh- wherever the original um, cause is, mm-hmm. we're we're severely limiting that multidisciplinary approach as well. Right. So it, now we get it, this gets even more complicated. Um, and, and, you know, Rebecca was saying earlier that we're, we're, what, what do we, what do we bring to bear on this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, how much do we value putting 
um, supports in place? And at what stage do we start putting the supports in place? Mm -hmm. So so if we allow bullying in the schools, for instance, because you mentioned at the beginning that you had been bullied, Mm -hmm. bullying very quickly leads to mental health issues, Mm -hmm. emotional, you know, depression, isolation, and, you know, um, uh, substance abuse, like all kinds of things can come out of of that. Mm -hmm. So, so if we don't have things, we don't have supports in place to deal with the bullying, then then we're going to get other things that come further down the line. And, and this brings to mind Gabor Mate's work around addiction. And so we're like, and, and, you know, bonding between child and parent in the, in the first 18 months of their lives. Like we get, this is, I, you know, as you're, as you're talking, the more you talk here, the more I, I, my, my brain is sort of, it's, it's like, it's, it's going into spasms because I can see (laughs) how complex it is Mm -hmm. and, and how much we need uh, communities of professionals Mm -hmm. and communities of people who need the support to come together and talk to one another about what's needed, what works. Um, And, and I don't think that any of these things are quick fix things, what you were calling the bandaid approach. Right. I don't I don't think any of them can be fixed like that. No. So we're, you know, at the at this we get this uh, uh, this um, enthusiasm that we that that Rebecca and I were both feeling when we were thinking because I had I, I worked with somebody at one time whose whose husband had ALS. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this legislation did not come through in time for her husband. And and this was. And it, it the 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 burden that this placed on the family, on the relationship between them, on the family, on the community was um, extraordinary. So I thought when it came through, I thought, ah, good, all right, this is great. And now we're beginning to look at, okay, so now how do we put oversights in place? How do we put adjacent support systems in mm-hmm. place? Um, and it, it seems to me, I mean, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because it will go out there in the world and, and I hope spark conversations around dinner tables and over cups of coffee and over beers and but like all, all over, not just the province, but the country around, um, what are we doing around keeping our population, our communities, um, in the best health possible physically and emotionally making sure that the vulnerable are feeling valued and supported uh, even while we seek to make more options available for suffering so that suffering is not required if suffering is not you know suffering is not an enjoyable way of living um leanne i I just wanted to reflect back to you. You mentioned the word advocate at one point through what you were speaking about. And what I'm really hearing from you is your life has become an advocacy, a life of advocacy, the work that you've chosen to go into based on your past. And even this conversation, it's very obvious that you are advocating for your former self, for your younger, more vulnerable, less skilled self, uh, while you aim for the people who are presently in that vulnerable state. And 
So thank you for sharing your story. We very much appreciate that willingness to share those tender parts of yourself for the benefit of demonstrating some gaping holes (laughs) that really do need to be tended to so that we can the spirit, I want to say the spirit of the law, we often refer to that with the Christian faith, right, with biblical laws, but I would say that it applies for a lot of our national laws, too. What is this, what is the aim of this law? What is it that most of us are intending or wishing to have it be? And recognizing that there, there are other pulls that that cost pull, the convenience pull, the overburdenedness of this of the individuals who are providing care, the burnout yes. and um, you know, the pressures from all all around, which could lead people in positions of power or authority to be swayed, to not be as cautious, to perhaps not. I don't know, and it's not necessarily that they're intending to be that way or to do that way, but. But there are lives that are at the crux of this, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that, you know, especially in the pandemic. And we're seeing, you know, healthcare professionals that are working so hard and um, are struggling um, and themselves. And so, you know, we do really need to come together as a community. And, and one of the final things I wanted to say is, is, you know, I am so glad I was able to access resources when I could and that these things didn't happen to me in 2021 because had I chosen a different path, then there's so many experiences that I would have missed out on. My son, I would have not been able to walk my son down the aisle. You know, I wouldn't have, I would have missed so many adventures um, in my life. And, And I just want to put it out there to people that, you know, even in the darkness, even when you're in that black box, and you don't think that you can go on, and it's been over and over and over that, you know, I can, I can hopefully hold space and be a testament that even through adversity, you can still have a life worth living and your life does matter. Absolutely. Thank you, Leanne. You're very welcome. We appreciate having had this conversation. So today is the first in our series of three or four shows, and we're going to ask you to help because we would love to know who else you know out there in our community who could add a voice to a, a, and another perspective to this, to this real, what we consider to be a really valuable topic. And we hope that you will come back to us um, with some ideas for who else we might be able to bring in for this series. So with that in mind, I wonder what's around the corner. Essential Conversations is brought to you courtesy of Luca Halleck's Power Sorcerer. And Rebecca Mears, Certified Coach. Increase your awareness, expand your options, empower yourself. Luca can be reached at www.lucahalleck's.com. I light the fires that light a thousand more. Connect with Rebecca at catchingfire.ca. Yep, yep, yep. yep, yep, yep. Oh, 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 oh. Happy, 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 boing, 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 boing,
Step into a new 